if you can believe it, it is the first week of November in 2021. We are quickly approaching the end of the year. Uh, That's a scary proposition. But I got your questions for this week. I'm going to answer those. And I got a couple news updates. By the time you're listening to this, we have likely already unveiled Chromega. Now, Chromega, uh, as of right this moment, is not physically here in my workshop, but he is on the way. I do have shipping confirmation that I'm checking diligently every hour, looking for updates. And it does seem reasonable. It will arrive uh, by next week, and I can get fulfillment taken care of for all the campaign pre-orders, all of the Patreon pre-orders, and then all the store orders. But do keep in mind, we are waiting on the product to arrive. It will take us probably one to two weeks to get through all of the orders and get them dispatched. So your patience is required, and I thank you greatly for that. But in any case, uh, I'm so happy that we can finally close the book on Crow. It has been a super long journey. Uh, I had no idea when we did the fundraising for Crow Mega that there was going to be, you know, a worldwide pandemic and a sort of collapse of the supply chain and all of the ripple effects that we're still dealing with as of right now. So this is a a character, and Sen as well to a lesser extent, that are really forged in the fire in, in the most difficult time period I've ever had professionally. Um, and uh, that makes it all the more sweeter when you get it in hand. When I first got the paint samples, holding this character... You know, it made me think to myself, I have my own He-Man right now. I've done it. I've cracked the code. I have my own Barbarian. I have my own Caveman action figure. I have this hulking, muscle-bound chieftain with all these great accessories and these beautiful color schemes. And there is something really satisfying about it. If I'm being completely honest, I did not know how I would feel about Chromega until I got the painted samples in hand. Um, this is sort of, out of the four Beef Strong style characters, this is the one I believed in the least. Now, I don't always believe in every single figure that I make. A lot of them are huge question marks for me. I just sort of trust the process and that something great will be delivered in the end. And uh, maybe the stories I write give it new context that you know make me embrace it a little bit more. But Chromega was definitely a sort of black sheep. It was outside of a lot of my comfort zones and areas. It is really, you know, very pigeonholed in this barbarian sort of look. Uh, A lot of my figures kind of can work in many different ways. They're much more versatile. This one is kind of locked with that look in mind. But uh, holding it for the first time, Not unlike, I assume, holding, uh, you know, a child you've birthed for the first time, I came to fully connect with it and understand that this is really a profoundly great action figure. I think to date, it is the best action figure that we've made. It's also worth noting that uh, we are showcasing our two final guest designers, the folks that signed up for the Design a Night tier on the original campaign. That, of course, is Adam Kenyon with his Dinox Lord character, this really brilliant combination of fluorescence and black that harken back to a certain uh, sword and sandal toy line from the 80s. You can probably piece together what it is. 
but uh, a truly fantastic colorway. And then, of course, we have this classic colorway coming back thanks to Matt Bennett, who loves the Nebula color scheme and wanted to see it happen again. And I think it works even better than I could have anticipated for the Chromega style. And I hope you guys agree. So it is pretty momentous that we got this figure wrapped up. Uh, I can't wait for everybody to get it in hand. I think it's going to be a big hit for everyone. Um, people are probably asking now that Chromega is done, what's the status of Diver? Diver being next in line of our sort of crowdfunded figures. Um, we are going to, now that Crow is sort of here, and once I get through fulfillment, I'm going to start the final pass on Diver. He has not been turned over to China. We have not begun tooling. This is a figure that may very well take us more than a year to bring to fruition, given the current slate of delays that we're, uh, you know, experiencing in manufacturing. Um, so as soon as I can get this fulfillment done, I'm going to hop back to the Diver project. Uh, to those wonderfully patient guest designers, you know, uh, I'm hoping by the end of the year, I'll have some new stuff to show you guys. They've largely been just holding in limbo. They have turned in their designs. We've locked down what those guest designs are going to be. I think they're all pretty fantastic. But um, it is very arduous to sort of do new tooling right at this moment because of the bottleneck of delays. Um, I've gone through this before, and I'll, I'll just touch on it briefly. My arrangement with the factories and, and with manufacturing is essentially one of cash up front. I have to pay for all the goods before they ship, and then the goods get to me, and then I sell them, and I make back my money, hopefully. Now, uh, bigger companies get to have terms with their factories. They might pay 30 days after the goods arrive, 60 days. They have more leverage. They spend more. For an independent operation, I, I get no such luxury. So, outlaying tens of thousands of dollars uh, is obviously very risky, very expensive. And when goods aren't shipping, that means I'm not earning back that money that I've invested in uh, this toy line. So, I have to be very, very careful about the timing of new tooling, introducing new figures, uh, and things like that. So. Um, I thank you in advance for your patience. One of the things that really has made me able to survive this year more acutely than any other year is the fact that I have a wonderful roster of patrons uh, in excess of 200 at this point, which is pretty phenomenal. And it's through those patrons that my basic needs are met and I can keep the lights on in the workshop. I can keep the heater running and uh, generally I'm not starving in order to make this toy line. And so I greatly appreciate all the patrons. If you want to become one, go to patreon.com slash jessedestasio, and you will have a wealth of riches bestowed upon you for being one of these elite special members. It's also worth noting that um, I am in a very thankful position because more and more people are tuning into our Twitch streams and donating bits which is huge for us. That, that has become a very big growing segment of our business. So thank you guys for that. And also people are reading my eBooks and buying my comic books, which, you know, I, I really sort of, my first urge as a young child was to be a comic book creator. And my life journey did not take me down that path, but I'm kind of circling back around to it. And having struggled for so many decades to even find one reader of my work that was not my family. 
uh, to now be able to release an ebook and have, hey, even 50 people pick it up. That is pretty phenomenal. And you have to think about the percentage of writers or creative types or authors who have penned their life's work and never get a single eyeball on it. It's kind of a sad affair. And so I feel really, really lucky that people want to read my work. And even if it's a dozen people, it it means the world to me. And that's another way that if you like this project, if you believe in it, you can kind of support and help out. Buy the eBooks, buy the printed magazines. Um, All this stuff is deeply fulfilling to me. So I'm very, very thankful for the people that support these things. And I hope, if nothing else, you know, I think a large portion of our audience are creative types. And I think that part of the purpose of doing this Knights of the Slash slash Toy Pizza project is to inspire other people. And now we're, we're coming up on six or seven years doing Knights of the Slice. And I have gotten to see different patrons and different fans. I've seen their careers and their pursuits and their hobbies evolve. I've seen people get really good at photography. I've seen people draw better and better photos every, uh, illustrations every week. Even some of those people have been contributors to this big project in many different ways. So, um, you know, I think just generally, it's kind of a high watermark to have Chromega here. It's making me a bit introspective, and I think it's pretty phenomenal what we built together. So uh, I want to thank you guys for that. I hope we can keep this community as positive and as controlled and and sort of, you know, a soft place to land on the internet for as long as possible because it, it really means a lot to me, and I think it hopefully means a lot to you guys. Now, shifting gears... Uh, this weekend, I got to go to a screening of a old movie from the 70s, The Parallax View with Warren Beatty. Uh, pretty fun movie, definitely worth watching. Uh, would be like a great movie, other than there are these kind of, <laughs> these like mandatory tropes of 70s cinema. You know, you got to have a, a car doing a jump. You got to have a bar fight, like all this stuff that just seems so out of place. But overall, great movie, pretty enjoyable. And it was put on by Truanon, who are a uh, podcast on Patreon. Really fantastic group of amateur investigators and journalists. They kind of came on the scene covering the Epstein trial. And more importantly, uh, covering lots of details in court filings that were not being covered by the majority of the media for whatever reason. You can insert your own conspiracy theory there. But um, they hosted a screening of this film, and I thought it was really fantastic. And the, uh, the sort of co-host of it was one Will Meneker from Chapo Trap House. I know there's quite a few Chapo Grey Wolves in the audience. And this is a little bit insider baseball, but I thought I would share. I got to meet Will and his lovely girlfriend, Catherine. Uh, bought them a drink and, you know, didn't want to bother them too much, but expressed, uh, you know, being a fan of their work. And uh, I also got to meet Bryce from Truanon. And in all cases, everybody was super gracious and very friendly. And it can be weird to kind of have a parasocial relationship with a performer or an artisan and then meet them. And, uh, you know, Lord knows I have fallen short of that many times. A lot of people uh, have met me at 
conventions, which is not meeting me in my best <laughs> element. Working at a convention is pretty draining. It puts you in a bad mood. Uh, I hope I have always, at least I've aspired to sort of be friendly and engaging to people who come up and want to get a picture or want to say hi or things like that. Um, but uh, everybody that I met was super nice and, you know, just a uh, great feeling all around. Whether or not they will, uh, whether or not Will will take my suggestion of doing a Chapo toy line series uh, to heart, I cannot say, but, um, you know, the seed has been planted. All this is to say, uh, if you need a film recommendation, check out Parallax View. I think you might like it. Now, let's move on to questions. Our first question here is from our good friend Charlie Pope, who I believe joined us earlier this year. I hope it's been a good year being aligned with Knights of the Slice so far. His question, what is your second favorite type of dinosaur or top two if you want? Uh, I'm guessing he's listened to this question previously and knows that my favorite quote-unquote dinosaur is Demetrodon, which is not a dinosaur. It is actually a mammal-like reptile, synapsids. Um, they are obviously long extinct, but uh, does not officially classify as a dinosaur, but uh, I just think they're incredible. And the sort of fossil history and our understanding of them is changing quite a bit. Um, we don't really know how their sails that came out of their back um, looked. There's some thoughts that it is sort of covered in skin or a membrane. There's some thoughts that it is exposed bone. Some thoughts that uh, it is sort of like decaying flesh exposing bone, which is pretty grotesque, but a really sort of fascinating take on this creature. Um, so he's been in my top spot uh, for quite some time. I would say number two is probably Ankylosaurus, um, if I'm pronouncing that right. But, you know, essentially an armored tank on four legs. And also a very, very crucial early game dino to get in Ark, which is a game I bemoaningly have played many many hours of and uh, you know you want to find one of those as quickly as you can next question from Gordon McKinnon Hall GMH what is Chromega's preferred mode of dinosaur transport obviously it is the Ceratopsian he needs to go no farther than our very own store which is selling an orange glow-in-the-dark dinosaur that Chromega can ride obviously this is canon and you guys can pick up the dinosaur as well. Um, and also, we have a 3D printed saddle. Well, not printed, but you get the 3D file. You print it at home or use a service like Shapeways. And uh, with a simple rubber band, you can have a mountable dinosaur that fits quite well with Knights of the Slice figures, but also other figures of different scales. So keep that in mind for your consideration. Next question is from Brett Burnickle, who is a, a brand new patron. Thank you for joining us on Patreon. Uh, I hope you hang around for quite some time. Will we see another release of Old Knight? I missed out on them since I'm newer to Glios and the Toy Pizza line and would love to get my hands on one. Uh, fantastic question. So um, I do have one style of Old Knight that I have not 
found what I want to do with. And this is a material style, but will likely be paired with some full color accessories. Uh, I just don't know where to slate that in because an old knight body is so versatile and we now have so many different head packs that I just got to wait for the character to sort of present itself to me before I uh, sort of commit to releasing it. But there is one banked and it will be available at some point in the near future, so that's good news. Uh, second piece of good news is I absolutely am looking forward to ordering some more Old Knights for 2022. In fact, uh, we're likely moving to a sort of two-pack offering in the Action Figure of the Month Club. Um, and uh, I have a really excellent idea for a pairing with an Old Knight that I think is going to just decimate people. It's going to be so incredibly cool. So um, that's something I have planned for next year, and I'll probably order up a couple other old knights just to have some in stock. Uh, so good chance by the end of this year or in the next couple months, more likely you will get at least one style of old knight. And then, of course, next year, I really want to do a dedicated sort of release for old knights that I think people will like. Uh, final point I want to make is on the store, we actually have available in small quantity uh, a sampler of Action Figure of the Month Club from this previous year. If you look on our front page and you go to the Action Figure of the Month Club icon for the Air Thrasher, that is actually an old knight style. That is the metallic purple base body with some really nice silver metallic paint deco. Um, while it does not come with a sword, swords are pretty easy to come by. And I highly recommend that. I think, uh, you know, if you have a, you got an itch, you got a scratch for an old knight, that's a very easy way to uh, handle that. And it, it is a fantastic color. Oh, and I just thought of this, the Wheel of Knights. Every other week on our Tuesday live stream, twitch.tv slash Knights of the Slice, you can win old, retired, long sold out styles of Knights of the Slice. And there is frequently old knights thrown up there. So if you haven't checked out our Twitch, you should do so. For 2,500 bits, you get a spin at the wheel. Also, if you are an Amazon Prime member, you get one free subscription to a Twitch channel of your choice every 30 days. Those subs really help us on the channel. So for your consideration, uh, that's probably going to be your best way to win some of the older styles of Knights of the Slice. We have consistently sold that wheel out every time we do it, and it's a hell of a lot of fun. And I, I have a ton of samples I've dug out of my deep storage to keep putting up on that wheel. So I would also say for your consideration, check out a Wheel of Night stream and consider throwing your hat into the ring to win one of the prizes. Here's a fun little tidbit from our Facebook group, which you guys can join. Knights of the Slice fan group. Just look it up on Facebook. Uh, Sam Sherry, our good close friend, said, who else likes to think of Chromega as a native Aussie? Fascinating theory, and I don't actually blame you. I think, um, you know, there is certainly uh, a little flair to that, to Chromega from that hemisphere, but uh, he is actually Ainu. And for those who don't know who Ainu are, they are uh, a island of Japan that was kind of closed off from the world for a very, very long time. And uh, they are sort of distinctly known as bearded Japanese men, which is a relatively rare genetic trait uh, for that country. 
and uh, you can see the influence of the Ainu and their culture and their sort of garb. Uh, like the main character of Princess, Princess Mononoke, I think is kind of an allusion to the Ainu culture. But really, really fascinating sort of true life uh, branching off of humanity that is worth uh, a deep dive. It's really, it's profoundly great stuff. So uh, check that out if you want to know a little bit more about these, the kind of real-world inspiration, amongst other things, uh, that went into Chromega. And for those who are curious, it is spelled A-I-N-U. Moving along with some other questions here, Gavin Raider, does the new Rex head pack still fit the 6-inch Rex neck joint in the toy pizza shop, or does it only work for Marvel Legends? Um, so, there is a Plan B Toys 6-inch Rex Gannon action figure in the store for a very great price, and this is a very old product that was rediscovered in a warehouse, and I managed to sort of buy it, and, uh, you know, I'm happy to release these. When you purchase that, you do get, essentially, the same version of the new Rex Gannon head pack, head, uh, but you get it with the sort of longer neck that attaches to the Plan B Toys body. Um, so the, the new two-pack that features two different heads, those largely work best with six-inch Marvel Legends figures. You may find other figures that work okay with it, like... Um, you know, maybe Star Wars Black Series, things like that. It requires a little experimentation. Uh, so, you know, the, the new two-pack solo heads, those are going to work with Marvel Legends. But if you buy the Plan B Toys Rex Cannon figure, you're already getting essentially the same version of that head just at a earlier point in its production prior to it being revised, which uh, gave us these new sort of two-packs. And for everyone who came out and bought a set of the new 6-inch head conversion kit, uh, thank you guys. I hope you really like them. As I've stated before, I think that the best kind of body that I've found that they fit on is the new um, U.S. Agent based on the sort of Netflix series uh, for Marvel. I, I think that kind of, uh, just for some reason, it just fits right, it looks really good, and the skin tones are almost a perfect match. So that would be uh, my piece of advice. Next question from Matt Connolly. Is there a link between the Cherubium and Chromega? Uh, if there is a link, it has not been disclosed to me as of yet. So I believe we have to leave that as a great big question mark. Next up from Sean Gordon. With Chromega finally releasing and Diver being so far over the horizon, are you excited to work on slash release things that haven't been shown and aren't long awaited. Um, I think I will be in the future, but really, uh, while Chromega is, you know, rounding his final lap, and I'm very thankful for that, um, the work on Diver has to really begin at this point, once Chromega is put to bed. So I am not yet in a position where I have a kind of clean deck and I can just sit down and think strategically about what is the next figure to happen. Um, I think in all likelihood, I'm probably not going to do a lot of fundraising like I did for Diver. Uh, while we had a very good, uh, showing for Diver, 
I sort of need fundraising activities to really be explosive, right? I want each and every one of the fundraisers that I do to sort of kick things up a notch and, and attract a larger audience and bring in more people. Uh, if you look at the hard numbers for Diver, while we met our goals and exceeded them, uh, there was not a huge influx of people. And this runs contrary to what a lot of people, I think, held to be a truth of Diver is going to be your most commercially accessible figure. If you would just release Diver, you're going to see all these people gravitate towards it. This would work perfect. This is going to attract, you know, G.I. Joe fans. It's going to attract Micronaut fans. I know uh, a dozen people who don't collect Knights of the Slice that would back this campaign. You know, I heard every sort of iteration of that in people's anticipation for Diver to sort of make his debut. Now that the campaign is done and over with, I can tell you we did about as good of business as we did on Crow and Sen 5, which are two figures that, you know, frankly don't have a lot of breakout commercial appeal. You know, they are very niche characters that mean a lot to me and probably mean a lot to you guys, but may not have context for the larger toy buying audience out there. So my thinking is because campaigns and fundraising take so much time and energy and focus, and it really is a very concentrated 20 to 30 days where you know, you're, you're getting up and hitting the refresh button every single second, uh, if I do it again, it has to be huge. It's gotta be a very big event. And what that probably means for next year is really being selective about whether or not I go back to the well of uh, crowdfunding. Now compare that experience with something like the Verkill, which was sort of uh, funded in secret with my own money and released at my leisure, more or less. Um, I think that's a much better experience. Uh, certainly is for me because it's a lot less work. Uh, we sold a ton of Verkill when he finally debuted. And, you know, I, I think, uh, I think you could argue I probably, at the end of the day, will make more money on a figure like Count Verkill that brought in newer customers, whereas a crowdfunding campaign that is a lot of heavy lifting, you know, may, might do slightly less business than that. So it's kind of an interesting sort of data set that I have to take into account. The other thing is, as we sort of go into 2022, we're coming off a year where I tooled the most amount of projects I have in my career, right? Um, if, we, if we stop and think about it, God, it all kind of blurs together, but let's see here. Star Marshal, I think that debuted this year, right? Uh, the Cherubium, of course, the, the Poncho Pack, Verkill, am I forgetting somebody in here? Send five, and now Chromega. I mean, we're talking about five or six new pieces of tooling that didn't exist prior to this year. And that was absolutely pushing everything to the limit, including my cash flow. And uh, it was done so under the most adverse conditions for a toy company uh, in the history of my life. So we really sort of put our foot down all the way on the gas. We almost broke the damn thing off, but we are still here. We have a, a bunch of great new sculpts. We're still standing. We have a very strong sort of base to grow off of. Uh, 
2022 to me looks like this. I'm not doing five (laughs) concurrent projects, that's for sure. Um, The supply chain hiccups are probably going to get a little bit worse before they get better. And there's definitely going to be delays all throughout next year as well. Um, It's going to be an environment where I need to be very sort of slow and methodical about what sort of things I tool and how many projects I take on. We're not going at the same pace as we did in 2021. It's going to be much more smart in terms of releases and things like that. Now, that doesn't mean my frequency or the entertainment value is going to be any less. Uh, The Twitch streams are going to continue. Our toy pizza videos on Friday are going to continue, most likely. Um, Our store releases twice a month going to continue. There's still going to be plenty to go through, plenty of surprises, Action Figure the Month Club in whatever form that may take. So, you know, it's really just about sort of minimizing my risk so that at the end of next year, I'm not in a precarious situation. Also, you know, given that we have multiple sources of income or multiple platforms we're active on, is probably a better way to think about it. Um, It's interesting which areas are growth areas, right? Now, the core of our business is selling a four-inch action figure for $30 or less. And, you know, that continues to be where we make the majority of our money. However, areas like Twitch and the live stream and Patreon continue to be pretty significant portions of the business. And, you know, there's, this is just such a unprecedented kind of company that uh, we're sort of, you know, we're managing together with me as the maker and you guys as the consumer. There isn't really a blueprint for how to follow this. Uh, You know, companies like Super 7, they do a lot of pre-orders. They have some pretty good content that they put out there. But there isn't a dedicated night that you can tune in every week and see Brian Flynn and Josh live, you know, acting like complete fools and probably for the better. (laughs) Um, You know, this entity is really like an entertainment entity more than it is solely just a toy company. There, there's so much more that goes into it, especially when you consider all the written material and the ebooks and the comics and, you know, the visual story. Um, you know, it's just such a interesting new being. And I think we're writing the rules for a lot of this as we go. And maybe... You know, maybe in 10 years' time, every company is going to have to have a comprehensive Twitch strategy. And, you know, they're going to have to do live drops. They're going to have to be more personality based instead of just, you know, a company brand uh, demanding attention. It's going to have to be the actual artisans and makers that contribute. They're going to have to be front and center with the presentation of the company and the, the store drops and things like that. I don't know, but um, I would say that. You know, Knights of the Slice is becoming less of just a toy company, although that will always be our core item, you know, our core focus, and more of almost, dare I say, an entertainment company. Um, So it's very interesting. And all this, to sort of get back to the question here, is uh, I'm not yet in a position 
where I can kind of stop and breathe and pause and then figure out what comes next. Uh, I gotta get I gotta get through Chromega, which is gonna be the next couple weeks of my life. And then I have to tackle Diver and get that off to China to begin his long journey. And maybe sometime around Chinese New Year, maybe around February, I think I will have enough locked in place that I can kind of stop and say to myself, uh, okay, what do I want to do? Not what am I obligated to do because I have pre-orders. What do I want to do? What is the next figure that's really speaking to me? How can we do things differently? How can we improve upon, you know, the groundwork we've already laid? Um, so it's a very exciting time. It's a, I'm also very exhausted. <laughs> but once Chromeg is out the door, um, you know, no coincidence that it sort of coincides with the changing of the clocks and it getting darker and sort of entering into that rest period that I, I really enjoy in November and December. Um, so it's all sort of happening as it should be. And, you know, next year is probably going to be the wildest year of this project. But I've learned so much, and we've all kind of made it through this year together. And, uh, you know, I really, I'm looking forward to applying everything I learned in 2021 to what I think will be a record-breaking 2022. Okay, moving along to some other questions now. Obviously, Crow Mega is on everybody's mind. So some of these questions are a bit redundant to points I've already made earlier in the podcast, but um, I'll still go through them, and hopefully I'm not repeating myself too much. Uh, Ryan Rusby asks, Now that Chromega has arrived, could you update us on Diver's ongoing design? Is he evolving much from the original drawings? Um, so as I stated earlier, I haven't actually sat down and done the hard work with Diver, and that's going to come up probably next week as this fulfillment gets pushed out the door. So I am looking forward to that. Um, I would say largely he will reflect the artwork. I I think Diver is going to be a much more binary sort of one to two design, uh, meaning there's not a lot of iterations or a lot of changes to him, with the exception being the sort of additional arm that I don't believe I showed during the campaign. Um, so that, I don't think I've promised anything there, so uh, however much it may change in the final product really wouldn't matter because theoretically nobody's seen it. So um, I think largely this is a figure that will be delivered um, pretty consistent with what's been shown so far. Uh, now, as I say that, of course, you know, changes could be made, things may pop up, but I, I see it largely as... Um, one of the more complete visions I had for a figure versus something like Radic that changed dramatically, you know, dozens and dozens of times before we finally tooled him. Ian Amling checks in to say, no questions for me this week, just a well-earned congratulations. Crow turned out amazing. I can't wait to see all the other colorways. Thank you very much, Ian. And uh, Ian's beautiful artwork graced the cover of the Battle for Pangea Island ebook, which is now in the store. Um, I highly recommend you check it out. 
Moving along, Chris Warner, will a painted Chromega be released in a more subdued color, similar to his appearance in Battle for Pangaea Island? Absolutely. Next question from Jacob Chabot, who, Jacob, your last name sounds like a type of cheese. I guess I'm thinking of Cabot cheese, right? It's delicious, in any case. Um, As a collector, what are your thoughts on toy packaging? As an apartment dweller, I have to send most of it to the trash, but do you have any instances where it's so well designed it's part of the draw? Is there a line where you'd feel bad about tossing vintage stuff? Um, You know, I I dealt with this for a long time as well. I lived uh, in um, a very small apartment in Queens for a decade, and generally overall I don't care about toy packaging. Now, if it is something vintage and it's still sealed, I'm holding on to that. But if it's contemporary stuff, uh, I'm actually getting rid of it. I, I am uh, encouraged by these bigger companies making, you know, uh, headway in reducing the amount of plastic used in packaging, making the majority of it recyclable. Uh, Hasbro's doing a very good job of this. Uh, if you've been paying attention to the changes in their packaging. It does take away some of the aesthetic appeal, but I think ultimately if it's reducing plastic waste, then that's a potentially a net positive. Um, so, you know, typically I'm tossing this stuff. In the case of vintage stuff, you know, a lot of those bubbles get kind of smashed. So I do hang on to backer cards, and I do have quite a, a collection of backer cards. That's more sort of for historical reference for myself when designing things or doing a deep dive into certain lines and things like that. Um, I would say the, the packages I do hold on to, though, outside of vintage stuff is uh, if it's really high-end stuff like a Hot Toys. Sometimes those packages are kind of the best way to store those figures, and so I'm not eager to part with them. But um, generally... Packaging is not a draw for me. Uh, If you're buying a lot of stuff online, there's no reason you sort of need packaging. I mean, I understand people aesthetically like it, but, you know, I've always tried to keep packaging to an absolute minimum with Knights of the Slice. I don't really do a lot of card backs unless they're sort of hand done uh, and I make it a special item rather than a sort of perfunctory thing that has to be included with every figure. So, um, you know, I... If we can use less packaging for toys, I think it's all the better. Next up, Quentin Russo. Nebula Crow had me thinking. Lava Born Crow Mega? Question mark. I recall seeing a volcano in some of your Pangaea Island art over the years. I could be wrong, but I hope I'm not. Pizza out. Um, So, I think that we actually showed a Lava Clan concept of Crow Mega during the campaign back in September of 2020. Um, I definitely did a Lava Clan concept and kind of played around with the idea. You know, part of um, my uncertainty about Chromega was there were not color schemes that popped right away for me. I really struggled for a long time to kind of design the non- sort of main colorways for Chromega, which you guys haven't seen yet, but they are on their way, and they will sort of get rolled out, you know, as the year progresses. Uh, Really struggled for a very long time with how to define this character through a color story, besides the sort of guest designers who who did a really great job in, you know, his sort of first initial offerings. Um, 
The Lava Clan, I never quite figured out a very strong sort of uh, selection of Pantones and things like that. But I think you are actually onto something here. Like if we did a Lava Clan, if we revisited that idea, it would be kind of cool to have it be transparent with glitter in red and, you know, have his sort of armor and stuff be uh, ancillary colors that kind of complemented that. So, uh, you know, I think you have an interesting idea here. Um, I don't know, if I'm being 100% frank, I've ordered a lot of Chromega in a lot of different styles. I don't know when I'm going to order more, right? This this first wave, which will take probably about a year to roll out to everybody in the store, um, it's, you know, it's going to take a long time to process all that stuff. And with all the ongoing delays, and especially with the anticipation to delays next year, um, I don't know when I'm going to sit down and sort of think about, okay, what is wave two for Chromega? That's kind of an intimidating idea. But, um, you know, I, I think this is a solid one. Next question from Thomas Bucci. Knights of the Slice seems to have a lot of references slash inspiration from the Bible. Why is that? And will there be references to other religions or mythologies in future Knight of the Slice stories? Um, so, Knights of the Slice is really a pastiche of a lot of different mythologies, religions, characters, things like that from, from history and also the sort of imagined world. Uh, I think it tends to get processed through a biblical or a uh, lens of Christianity just by virtue of us being in the United States, growing up where we grew up and, and things like that. Um, I have a lot of exposure, or I had a lot of exposure to the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, uh, growing up, you know, doing Bible studies on the weekends and things like that. So it is just uh, a familiarity to me. And, um, you know, I think that that has infused the work that I do. But I would say that uh, an even bigger contemporary influence on Knights of the Slice, especially with a couple newer characters that we've met in the past year or so, uh, really is imagining the sort of proto-Indo-Euro world. And, you know, that's a time period that there's not a lot of written history of, but it is a incredibly fascinating uh, sort of look at humanity. Um, so I would say that that, for the sort of next chapters that are coming up, and some of the seemingly, uh, you know, background characters that you've met, they're going to start taking center stage, and you will you will come to understand uh, the influence that this Proto-Indo-Euro world has on a lot of the consequences in the storytelling that happen coming up. I think also, in terms of the concept of the vector and the collective unconsciousness and birth and rebirth, uh, those are all ideas that are sort of archetypical to most religions, right? We find the idea of the afterlife uh, almost in every, you know, every sort of organized faith. We find the idea of there being a non-waking world, right? Whether that's the literal Hades or the, uh, you know, Dante's Inferno uh, or present-day internet, right? We all have sort of humanistic cultural references to these ideas. And I think those are all expressed in kind of in the background of Knights of the Slice, but they, they certainly are there. 
Okay, now we're entering the Tomimoto zone for an excellent question. Favorite Kenner shadow figure? Uh, Lance knows I love the shadow. I love the Kenner line that came out in the mid-90s. Um, that's a really tough one because, honestly, that is a, a fantastic line. Especially considering they had to sort of make variants of the shadow, which is a character with one costume, and make them interesting, and I think they really did. So it's kind of tough for me to pick. I, I probably would not gravitate towards any of the villains, although I think they did a really good job there, too, extrapolating and making them interesting. Um, I mean, I, God, I had them all. I really love just the standard shadow with his working holsters and his light piping. You know, it's just such a fantastic costume and a fantastic character. Um, God, I have a really hard time picking. <laughs> the the uh, clear one is also great. I think it's Ambush Shadow or something like that. Like, that's a, a fantastic figure. Um, I guess I'll go... This is kind of an oddball pick, but I'll go with the shirtless uh, training shadow because I kind of use that as, you know, my own sort of generic ninja, right? It, it didn't necessarily look like the shadow without the hat, and so he became uh, kind of an extension of... The character who would eventually be Radic, right? I've I've talked a lot about the uh, commando figure I had when I was a kid, the Arnold Schwarzenegger figure, and how that was like this sort of uh, buff dude with military expertise who was always on the run. He was always being uh, chased by assassins, and there was a bounty on his head, and he would always have to like steal clothing and guns and weapons, and you know, uh, fight an entire squad of policemen and jump in a hover car and all this stuff and that sort of idea permeated a lot of different figures it, it kind of moved on throughout the decades as you know the toys I owned changed or you know the, um, the toys themselves became more sort of uh, sophisticated and um, you know in the 90s I didn't have that commando figure anymore so this sort of shirtless shadow became that character and then eventually, um, you know, that character became what today is known as Radic. And, uh, you know, the sort of man on the run, plagued by assassins, uh, that story actually came to fruition. Like, you know, that, uh, that definitely, uh, we brought that to real life. So I think I'm going to go with that one, even though it's probably the least Shadow-esque figure in that line. Next question from Jeremy Price. Who wins this fight? Hob versus Cro-Mega. Details, please. Um, you know, I'm going to sort of not answer this for a specific reason. We do not know what power Hob may have, right? It has not been revealed. It hasn't even been revealed to myself yet. But I think we can all agree there is a, a deep-seated power within that creature, the likes of which we do not know. His, his levels are over 99, for sure. Um, 9,000, not 99, you know, I'm betraying uh, that I was too old for DBZ when it came out with, uh, with that flub, but so be it. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I would say, you know, Cro-Mega is absolutely one of the strongest warriors that we've met so far, even though he is in a very much diminished state, uh, when you read the Battle for Pangea Island ebook, 199, in store now. Uh, but it's impossible to sort of parse this out at this moment. But thank you for the question. 
before I close up shop here, I do want to uh, address something that's kind of floating out there in the ether recently. Um, there was a YouTube video that went up and there's a sort of chorus that gets repeated over and over again. And that chorus is, it's the end of O'Neill design. It's the end of Glios. They're circling the drain. And I think that this uh, criticism is worthy of taking head on because it has been happening since the first year of Glyos and O'Neill, right? This is something that just sort of cycles through the collector's culture every couple months, every year or so, and people believe that they can read the tea leaves and see that, okay, this is it. O'Neill is, is out of business and, uh, you know, the Glyos makers are done and it's creatively bankrupt and that's it. This is the end. We're finally here. But the problem is this has been, what, more than a decade of people chanting this, you know, in their anonymous spaces. So I just want to sort of distill what this criticism is. Uh, because I think it is misdirected. I don't think it is actually uh, what people feel it is. And and I can tell you, with my uh, slightly insider information, this is patently false. Like, there are people stating every year, without fail, that this is the last release of O'Neill, or that the factory's closing, or any number of concoctions in their mind palace. You know, who knows? But my point is... Um, I think that their feeling of alienation is legitimate, right? Like, the face of Glyos and Nonel and all the makers has changed, and it's changed dramatically post-pandemic. And the early days of Glyos and the early customers of Glyos may not recognize very much in today's marketplace uh, based on when they entered the hobby. And that's not coming back. I mean... People have to sort of reckon with that. They have to reckon with that outside of Glyos and outside of toys and action figures. The world becomes an a alienating place the longer you exist in it and the more that sort of market forces dictate everything, right? So the feeling of alienation is actually legitimate. It's just sort of being pushed and distilled through a single toy maker's creative decisions you're not actually addressing the bigger issue that you just probably feel alienated in many aspects of your life. This is why I want to sort of caution people against, this may seem pretty apparent, but you really have to caution yourself against taking as gospel the things that are said in Glyos groups or even toy groups in general or just, you know, general information. Things that are spoken as gospel and, and hard fact on places like Facebook, Instagram, 4chan, these older platforms, these more antiquated spaces where earlier customers are comfortable and frequently post, this is not where the conversation is, right? There's an entire generation of newer, younger collectors of Glyos figures and lines, myself included, or my customers included, I should say. Uh, we don't really participate in the biggest way in these free platforms, right? Because they tend to skew towards the negative. The people who are positive and happy and having a good day, they're probably not spending all day long posting on 4chan or in a Facebook closed group or places like that. They're living their life and probably pretty happy with the purchases they make. Um, that's why I think this younger 
wave of Glios collectors have moved to newer platforms like Discord, Patreon, our Twitch streams, for example, it's because there is a sort of bar to entry to these newer platforms, and it does sort of shake off some of the more antiquated customers of fan bases, you know? And you could see this not just in action figures, you can see it in, you know, any number of sort of fan bases. If there is a bar to entry, like say a dollar subscription you pay for a Patreon, or a technological barrier like, I don't know what Discord is, how do I get onto a Discord? How do I post on a Discord? You know, if that's a loop you have to jump through, a lot of people who are not that enthusiastic about a brand are not going to take that leap. And these are called deep forest groups. Now, I'm stealing this from a very, very clever sort of researcher named Joshua Citarella. He is on Patreon. It is very, very heavy meta big brain stuff, but I really enjoy his work. And what he's concluded is that younger generations, I'm kind of aged out of this, but I have been fortunate enough to adapt to it. But younger generations don't actually want a public square, right? They don't want to be on Facebook with their crank grandparents who are posting, you know, QAnon nonsense or, you know, all the sort of annoying people. They don't want to engage with them. They just want to be part of the fan base in its purest form. And that does require getting out deep into the forest away from the public eye where there's not a lot of light there and that's why i think our discord is such a fantastic place and that's why i think the twitch streams are so much fun because there is a barrier whether it's a dollar amount or a technological barrier it is keeping out the anonymous people who are just there to be miserable and to troll if you want to find my stuff in its purest essence, you got to do a little bit of work for it, right? You got to become a patron. You have to get a Discord invitation. You have to, uh, you know, figure out how to navigate Twitch. And because all of you, well, a good portion of podcast listeners, I would say anyway, have done that work, you're in this really nice community, right? Where nobody's going to spend the time or the money to come onto my Patreon to troll me. There have been a couple people who, uh, you know, got the boot. I chalk that up more to just emotional problems, less a sort of, uh, you know, strategic trolling operation where they're spending their own money. Uh, but largely, the goodwill of the Knights of the Slice community and the Squires of the Slice is able to kind of amplify and grow because we have these deep forest communities. And, you know, I, I think that that is part of why this meme of the death of Glios keeps coming to the surface over and over again. It's because these people are only spending time in these free public spaces, these Facebook groups, 4chan, etc. And it's just negativity being amplified back and forth. And the true proof in the pudding is the end never comes, right? Their belly aching is endless. And more importantly, the end of Onel never happens. Matt continues to churn out toys. He does it on his own schedule and on his own timetable, but he's still there kicking ass. So I do want to just sort of throw that out there because I do think interpreting the chatter from free platforms is almost always going to be a negative process. 
And it's going to leave you with a perception that is not reality. And I encourage people, if you love a creator, if you love an artist, if you love a brand, if you love a toy line, go find the deep forest version of that community, whether it's on Patreon, Discord, etc. Go and sort of spend your time and your creativity in that kind of space. Because people do appreciate an area if they're has been a, a sort of a little bit of friction to get there, whether it's a subscription or whatever. Like they tend to not treat it like a rental car. So that's where my mind's been today. I thought that was kind of an interesting and insightful thing. And uh, I thought I'd pass it along to you. But with all of that laid out and all the questions answered, I'm gonna sign off and I'm going to continue to drink black tea all day long, unsweetened, and uh, just have a sort of caffeine-induced mania, because that's, that's how I get through the day. So thank you for listening, and pizza out.